I think he had a great heart, and that's the beautiful thing. I think he had a great heart in terms of the love of the game and the love of his, particularly his children, um, and I just think he gave so much to the game that you often hear that he was there long after the others that were signing autographs because at the end of the day, let's be real, it was what the kids wanted. They wanted they wanted Warney's autograph more than anyone else's, and the king would be there for ages, um, and that comes through in that documentary. So in summing him up, I just think he had, had a massive heart and he gave back. He gave back to his fans. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well-being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials, here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast. It's a huge challenging week and certainly a week that cricket is all the sadder for not only the loss of the amazing Rodney Marsh but the following day losing Shane Keith Warne I didn't really know what to say this week it seemed surreal to put up a different podcast and having my dear husband home the incredible in my humble opinion DK Morrison I just thought it would be really nice for us to share with you our memories and our association with this incredible Australian leg-spinning cricketer. I hope you enjoy this week's self-love podcast. It was a delight again for me to interview Danny, get some inside information, some insight into what he thought of this phenomenal cricketer. I really hope you enjoy the show. I look forward to seeing your comments and your feedback. We both got a bit choked at times because it's still so, so raw, but I sincerely hope from our hearts to yours that the incredible Shane Warne knows just how much of a difference he made in this world, in this time, and also for all of us who loved cricket, loved being a part of cricket, and certainly we will see him immortalised into our hearts, our humorous side of life, and our absolute belief and ability to live life out loud just as he did. I look forward to sharing this with you and I hope you give us the feedback by going to Kim Morrison 28 on Instagram. You can go to Kim Morrison training on Facebook and you are very welcome to follow Danny Morrison on Twitter at SteelyDan66. I look forward to sharing with you more amazing interviews, but for this week, may I say this, rest in peace, gorgeous Shane Warne. As you can hear, I am quite delighted actually this week to interview my gorgeous husband, the amazing Danny Morrison. And it's been quite a week for us and obviously the, the cricketing world. And even though this is a self-love podcast, I think there is nothing better than to understand and really connect with our love of cricket, our love of sport, and certainly of identities. And this week we've lost not only Rod Marsh, age 74, but also the king himself, the amazing Shane Warne. So, Dan, thank you for speaking to us. It's a treat to have you on the show, especially someone who has the inside oil. But maybe what would be really nice for the listeners 
everybody knew Shane Warne. Everybody seemed to know who he was. Even in America, they knew who hmm. he was. But maybe we could go back for you. When did you first see this gentleman come onto the circuit and, and maybe what was your first impressions of this boy? Well, he was a boy. You're right. It was feeling like that. Um, he certainly hadn't become the king. And your intro there, Kimmy, um, it really was. I mean, I, I texted a mate within the circle and said, it really feels like something big, like Elvis Presley passing in 1977 when he was 42, the king of rock and roll. And and, and Warnie's nickname was the king. And it really was felt like Elvis has left the building. Um, and for me to, yeah, peel it back to all those years ago, 92, um, he was playing in England. He was playing some club cricket in England. And um, I met him at Old Trafford. Yeah, just, and, and not um, anything organised or anything. Yeah, he just happened to be there and we'd finished a first-class match, I believe. And then he was there and got to meet him. And I had the great fortune of filling in for the amazing Wazi Makram. And, of course, Pakistan were touring in 92. And so I filled in as the overseas player at Lancashire County Cricket Club. And he was there. And it was just, yeah, you saw this this guy, this youngster, and he's... Um, blonde hair and, um, yeah, the, the, those piercing yellow eyes um, that you have got too, actually, Kimmy, um, similar coloured eyes. And, and yeah, it, it strikes you. And I think that's the one thing I remember. It really did, str- it struck a chord that here's this guy quite confident and um, and his eyes, he had these tiger-like coloured eyes. And, um, yeah, it was amazing. And that was 92. And then all of a sudden, um, as one does, the year rolls round, and I remember seeing him get that seven for at the MCG against the West Indies after he got pummeled in his debut at the beginning of '92, and so to see him uh, start to develop, and then after that, that same summer, he came to New Zealand. So he toured to New Zealand um, at the beginning of '93, and then, and of course, um, our dynamic captain Marty Crow um, was impressed with him as well, but also you know got into him a little bit because he was still making his way. Um, but you could also sense this guy, you know, had a bit about him. You know, he was quite physically imposing. If he wasn't six foot, he wasn't far off being six foot tall. He was strong. And I, I just remember listening to some of the batters make comment about, you know, you could see such strong hands and his powerful wrists uh, to make the ball spin like this and turn. Um, and it was challenging for him because it was still part of a learning process, let's be honest. Uh, in New Zealand at the beginning of 93. So he's only starting his career, not even a year into it, and hardly played any test cricket. So you got the sense that, yeah, this guy could be something quite special. But it wasn't until he went to England. And then we were there. You and I got married. We'd finished playing the Aussies at home. You and I got married, and we went and played league cricket and and moved to Rochdale, didn't we, Uh, and played in the Central Lancashire League. And we got invited um, for that test match at Old Trafford the ball of the century. And it's quite it's quite freaky to look back on it that we were there side on. We were there because, of course, the pitch is, runs a different way now at Old Trafford. It was very much the other way, east to west. And so they've changed it to be sensibly north to south because of the setting sun. And, and when I look at Warnie side on, we were sitting there with a lot, a few other Aussies who've got obviously tickets there to that lovely pavilion, that lovely old historic pavilion at Lancashire County Cricket Club. And, and Warnie... Um, yeah, he bowled that delivery. His first ever ball in Ashes cricket and his first ever ball in a test match in England, you know. So it had a lot going for us. And, you know, everyone goes in about Warney writing his script. And he often did because he was just a fascinating individual that 
believed in himself so much. And I think after that tour, um, yeah, you, you knew he'd arrived and so much shine. I remember even the great Richie Benno with some of his comments during that summer and Ashes series of 93 um, was quite um, <clears throat> mesmerised and gobsmacked by his ability. I'm amazed we were there. I mean, I still really don't know much about cricket, <laughs> but I've loved watching it over the years and it was quite phenomenal that, yeah, his first ball in Ashes cricket, we happened to be there watching it live. For me personally, I'd like to go back a little step, though, back to that 93 tour when he was in New Zealand. And I remember whistling very strongly up in the stands <laughs> because he happened to be one of the wickets that you took for your best figures of seven for 89. Mm. Could you just talk us through a little bit about that test match? That was one of your best test matches that you played. And what other players were in the match at that point and which other wickets did you take? Well, it was a memorable series because... The fact that Alan Border, the previous one, and we lost the first Test match in Christchurch, and it was quite fitting for them because Border had gone past um, the record there, you know, 10,000-plus runs, and he went past Sonny Gavaskar's record of becoming the highest run-getter in Test match cricket. And so that was amazing for them. And they got a cake organised and everything at Lancaster Park um, there in Christchurch, and they won the Test match and fittingly did. And then that was the next test match in Wellington, which um, was a blast because of what you've just mentioned, you know, my best bowling figures. And um, the guys caught really well too, which was great, uh, which some of us didn't always have the greatest amount of luck with um, slip, the guys in the slips because it also changed a bit too. We, you know, guys were coming and going in and out of the side a bit. But, um, yeah, I remember it vividly now when I look back on it because, of course, you know, you, you see those old clips from time to time. And I remember someone palmed it up. I might have been Kenny Rutherford palmed it up and then Great Batch around the corner took the catch. And that was Warney, um, edged it and got, and got sort of palmed up at slip. And then, yeah, Great Batch came around the corner and caught it. Um, so, yeah, there were some really good catches. And, you know, we, um, Crowey batted beautifully. Um, he got 100. And so, you know, Marty, Loved playing at Wellington as well. So it had a lot going on. And, and, and Warney, to be fair, you know, as part of his development, you know, you saw a lot of him. And it's a great it's a great viewing ground for us players sitting up in the RA Vance stand and watching that from the, that player's pavilion. And so, yeah, again, it was just intriguing to watch those guys play. And, um, you know, Big Murph Hughes, all bristling menace and abuse. Um, McDermott was a fine bowler, of course, and you had Warney. Um, you know, in the thick of it. So when I look back on it with fond memories, and, and of course you, yeah, you were making a bit of noise too, whistling and carrying on. Um, but it was about that whole learning time of seeing this, you know, this unique fellow um, bursting onto the scene. And we got married at the end of that season, so it was a pretty special year for us. I want to talk to you then. I mean, you and I are both a bit gobsmacked when we woke up early hours of the other morning to hear that Shane Warne had passed away. Mm. It, was, it was so shocking because we were just talking about Rod Marsh. What did you think? What were your first thoughts? You knew the man. You knew what he was like on the park and off. He has the nickname of being a legend and a larrikin. What was he really like? Well, he was just... He was very accommodating and having a chat with. And I think a lot's been written and there'll be a lot more, of course, uh, in the coming uh, days and weeks 
that Warney was. He was just such a down-to-earth guy. He was, he was, he was the guy next door. Um, and having watched the documentary with you um, last night as we discuss here on your podcast, it was only last night, and then he loved his Aussie rules and he really wanted to be an Aussie rules footballer for St Kilda. And when I look at, you know, his love of it and his passion, he talked about playing Aussie rules and that that was his first love. And then he'd go down there and he was a regular bloke who liked to drink, liked a pint, loved a ciggy. You know, he was a smoker and and uh, liked to laugh and, 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 and a, you know, a bit of repartee and a bit of a sledge and a giggle. And so when you think back to all those other functions that when he did, obviously, you know, cricket found him and took him rather than Aussie rules or tennis, as he's mentioned, or his golf, his love for golf, um, cricket was his thing. And so when we met at functions, you know, be there for your blazer and tie stuff at the beginning of a test series, like I end of 93, um, when we got together at the start of the, the series, was that um, he was just, yeah, a regular guy having a couple of cans of beer at the time in those early 90s. I mean, he got more fond of a bit of wine later and champagne and that A-listing lifestyle. But he was, he was just a guy that you could have a chat and you know, anything, about anything of life. And so the simplicity of how he lived his life um, has been well documented. Um, I enjoyed just having a bit of laugh with him and a banter and around. You talk about that early, early mid-90s. Um, I was just chatting with our neighbour about um, when he became this big sort of icon and we were away in Darwin. Remember we went up there in Darwin, we had to um, have a camp and he was up there for Victoria, Darren Lehman or Buff Lehman, he was up there for South Australia. We were there for New Zealand. Um, and I think one of the other guys, I think there was there in the Tasmanian first class side were there. So guys with, you know, that time of the year, you couldn't really get outdoors so easily. And we were up in Darwin. And I remember just, you know, mobile phones had just come in and there was Warnie, Rockstar Warnie with them. I can't remember what sort of phone he had, but, you know, I was using an Ericsson at the time. I think he was using a Nokia. And um, he was all over it. In fact, he probably had an Ericsson too, actually. I think he had so many phones on the go. It was sort of a Hollywood Warnie. And he was just chatting about that and his big Nike deal. Um, you know, that had come to fruition and he'd had these Nike studs there with the swoosh and these air studs, you know, already. He was this glamour boy rock star because suddenly he'd been doing so well from 93, 94, beginning of 95, that um, he was this pin-up boy um, that every bloke wanted to be in Yahoo and have fun. And that was the thing about him, you know, blonde hair, ripped a ball, got people out, dominated and was so confident in his own ability and had that, that never-say-die attitude and always believed he could get people out or win the game. And so when you sat around with him in those situations, you just see the confidence that oozed from every pore of him and in every breath. So he was interesting to be around. There's no doubt that he was quite unique. And in stuff that's been written of him recently, um, they go on about that aura, that some people have that aura you're around that are very charismatic because they're very confident and they're, you know, they're on top of their game and Warney was. And so um, he used that confidence massively. And it was interesting too, watching that documentary towards right at the end of that documentary, as you and I watch, was about attitude. He mentions attitude as everything. And we've, you know, there's that lovely quote from Charles Swindoll that, you know, you have in your notebook and use often it, you know, lunch and engagements or speaking engagements and you'd read I would read that out about how much 
that string to our bow is so important about attitude because 90% really is about that. And 10% is about, yes, whether you know, you're physically going to do something, but mentally with your attitude, it's the one thing you can change and have a course of how you want to choose, you know, your physicality, as you've always mentioned, um, how you choose to be in your attitude. Um, and you could see that with Shane. He was, poof, he was, he was unique. Well, he was unique. And you say he was a pin-up boy. And yes, he had those eyes and the blonde hair, but he, he also was a bit <coughs> overweight. And, and he, <clears throat> he didn't look to me like a pin-up boy. He just was charismatic and confident and cocky and very Aussie and all of those things. But he also didn't have ripped abs and trained mm. hard and and yet. And he also, in that documentary, didn't really start playing cricket till he was in his late teens. How does someone who doesn't really look like an athlete, who just oozes confidence and has, as you say, the attitude, then become the best spin bowler in the world ever? Mm. Well, for a start, you're not trying to run in from 30 metres and hurl a cricket ball quickly. That takes a lot more, I think, aerobic fitness um, and endurance of that style. Having said that, I mean, he's doing the most difficult thing in terms of, of a skill set, which is leg spin bowling, wrist spin bowling, and to have control over it and the dynamic nature of what he brought to the table and what he learned. And again, we go like harp on about the documentary, the guy Terry Jenner, uh, who became his sort of go-to guru, mentor, coach, that he would regularly get advice from and, and of course, TJ, Terry Jenner would watch him and, and often be there on tours. And Warney would pay for that to be there as his, you know, his private coach, a bit like our golfers and tennis players would have their entourage come around. And so Warney could afford to do that with Terry Jenner and have him about. So when I look at that, and you mentioned that, I think by his own image, what do you call it? I had the, I had the, the daddy, the daddy figure, <laughs> the daddy boy figure, um, instead of the rip dabs and the, you know, the, the suave physique. And as you say, you know, at times you used to get grief, uh, particularly the English who love to get stuck in um, and, you know, who ate all the pies? You fat bastard, you fat bastard, you ate all the pies. They'd chant this and stuff. Um, and, give, you know, I mean, the other one was Big Merv Hughes. You know, they had, they had those sumo T-shirts, <laughs> sumo Merv. Uh, I remember that tour in 93 and they had David Boone was his love child, you know, little Booney. So, you know, that whole Mickey taking I think just served to really motivate Warney and Merv at the time, both Victorians, both very motivated and both very dominant in that Ashes series of 93, where Merv had been around a lot longer and was more on the scene. In fact, Merv took, I think, his 200th test wicket in that series. And I remember the English commentator saying, it's no mean feat. And whilst they give him a hard time, but, you know, maybe he's just a little bit big around the midships, uh, Merv was a fine bowler in his own right and another with attitude and character. So... You had these two Victorians, um, dominant and in, in, in front and centre, and really were box office. So when I look at Warney, might not have had the you know uh, ripped physique uh, and of the modern day cricket, where that was just starting to come in a bit more in the mid nineties, where cricket started to become a little bit more professional and serious, particularly I think for the Aussies and the, the English for that Ashes series. So Warney, yeah, I mean, he probably just he just didn't feel like he needed to be this you know, six-pack rip guy that was a pin-up type thing. And he didn't, He didn't. I think the other great thing about Warren is he didn't go searching for that. You know, it wasn't about his side of him. He just got on, 
after the game, a couple of beers, because that was one of the part of the sponsors, and, of course, the sponsors were either <laughs> I laugh about it. Now, breweries, beer company, or cigarettes. You know, in this modern era of the 21st century, God, even to bet you shouldn't smoke. But, again, athletes do. You know, it's their downtime and, and it's their choice. So at the end of the day, it's a personal choice. And there was warning. This is my personal choice. This is who I am. If you don't like it, you can shove it because this is what keeps me ticking along and keeps me, I think, a bit mentally up. Um, and you think, well, oh, isn't that terrible? You know, he smokes too much, smokes 30 or 40 a day and has a few beers or a couple of wines late at night with guys or catches up. But, you know, it worked for him. It's not for everyone. Of course it's not. But he was, as we keep saying, the special one, um, and it worked for him. One thing on that tour of England, when his wife then uh, was about to come over with his three children, and I guess then everything that Warney touched turned to gold until this turning point in his life where his wife arrived and sadly, as you just mentioned, with England, the tabloids, the public, like they really do get stuck in. And she was confronted with a Mm. whole lot of, um, hideous stuff which really compromised the marriage which also made her turn around and go back to Australia with the children um, what do you think that did to him as a player and do you think that impacted him was he as big a jerk as people made out to him to be or was this just part of who he is mm. yeah you've we've, so we've gone through the mid-90s and fast forward to that series of 05 that big ashes series which was his last one in England so when you look at it, Warney, he played in 93, 97, 2001, and 2005. So he played in four major Ashes series in England. Uh, and then, of course, he finished against the Poms in 06, 07, and just, you know, just a year and a half later. But when I look at that, yeah, again, um, Shane, that was Shane Warren. And, and um, again, he makes no excuses and... That's how he chose to live his life. Um, and like anything, um, and again, for a lot of us who don't live in glass houses, and I think for people in your podcast know our history a bit, um, we're not all angels. And, and I think as humans, we can be fallible. And so I think for a lot of us men who are in a bit of the spotlight because of our sport or whether it's you know actors, you think about that, and Warney certainly rubbed shoulders with a lot of A-lister actors and, and people in that other industry, that um, Shane just got on with it. And that was part of the dynamic of who he, who he was. And he got on with it. And so at some point, yeah, there was going to be compromise and there was going to be a scandal and there was going to be um, front and centre exposure. And so you could see in the particular documentary for Shane, um, he felt... You know, he'd really let his family down and himself, but particularly his family and his wife. So um, that was tough. But as he also rightly points out, what a a freakish and yet selfish, and by his own admission, you know, if you're going to be that great, you're going to have to be selfish. And that's what it was. He was there for Australia. He was there for his cricket team. He was there to do well. He was there to win the Ashes. And... And whilst they didn't win those Ashes in 05, he had an amazing series and he had to go through all of that, crying, lying on the floor, as he says in the documentary, crying on the floor, drinking on his own. He didn't go out. He was like almost a prisoner in his own thing. But he created that too, let's be honest. He he created all of that and he owns that. And I think that's another endearing quality about 
the late, great Shane Warne, is that he owned that. He knew he was being a jerk. He knew he was compromising his marriage. He knew he was being a, a dork, and that sort of stuff was going to catch up with you. So um, it did, and obviously, ultimately, it cost him his marriage, and, you know, he kept playing for a little bit longer. But also the beautiful thing I saw and hear in your podcast, Kimmy, is that people ask he could have probably kept playing a little bit longer, but he also wanted to be a full-time dad. And so when he finished in 2006, seven season against the English here in Australia, he um, he wanted to be a full-time dad. And he realised that he'd sacrificed quite a bit of being away from his three children and wanted to make up for that and wanted to be a full-time dad, as he rightly says. Um, that's part of the reason why he finished at the beginning of 07. If you were about to be interviewed on a radio station right now and you could summarise Shane Warne in one or two paragraphs or sentences, exactly how would you describe him? I think he had a great heart, and that's the beautiful thing. I think he had a great heart in terms of the love of the game and the love of his, particularly his children, um, and I just think he gave so much to the game that you often hear that he was there long after the others that were signing autographs. Because at the end of the day, let's be real, it was what the kids wanted. They wanted they wanted Warney's autograph more than anyone else's. And the king would be there for ages. Um, and that comes through in that documentary. So in summing him up, I just think he had, had a massive heart and he gave back. He gave back to his fans because at the end of the day, he was also real and honest enough that he knew that with all of those endorsements and all the trimmings that come with it, it was about the fans buying product, coming through the turnstiles, buying memberships, rati rati ra, to watch him and his teammates come and perform. So he felt he owed it to them. And that's what I love. It's almost like the Cranberry song, Ode to My Family. I think he owed it to them and he, and he wanted to sing an ode to them and that's what he did with his by bowling. That was his, if you like, his wonderful um, musical instrument, his wrist and his spin, and he spun a web and he, he spun a hell of a party. It was wonderful. Yeah, he, uh, he certainly crammed a lot in those 52 years. One thing that came across to me, and it's something that we've spoken a lot about, Australian sports people, their attitude you've mentioned already, but one thing that particularly struck a chord with me when his wife did leave the tour and obviously he was broken and all those things, the crowd didn't give him an inch, if anything. The Barmy Army laid into him mm. even more. <laughs> and I'm not sure many top international athletes could take a barrage like that, mm. ball after ball, over, over, after, over, and also game after game. They did not let up on him. Mm. What do you think was the difference? What what makes him handle that compared to somebody else who can have a comment and it almost makes them lose their whole professional career can mm. go out the window? Well, I think, one, he'd been around long enough, so he was street smart and also hardened. Like, he'd been there before. It, it, this was his, you know, fourth Ashes Tour of England. Knew a bit about the Barmy Army and that would come at you like that. Uh, the, the tabloids and... England, as you've mentioned too, unrelenting. And so he knew a little bit there, but also he the thing I um, applaud him as much as anything because of his mental toughness that he said, 
And is that being selfish? Possibly. Um, how do you dress that up? But really, it was about him um, shutting that out and had the ability to put the blinkers on, as it were, and be very soul single focused and do a job. And that was his job was there to do that. And I think in a way, as he mentions in the documentary, that he it drove him, the, the Barmy army, and they were giving him so much grief with his, with his wife and the scandal and his wife going home, and that he did it for his family. He owed this particularly to his children and to his teammates um, to do the best he could do, possibly ever do. And it was. And you, and you heard the tributes of some of those English players um, said, you know, if it wasn't for Warney, we would have smashed the Aussies a lot easier. And it wasn't. It went right down to the wire. It was an incredible series um, that it was so tight. Um, and Warney, with a bit of help from Glenn McGrath, certainly, um, and some of the batters. But it really, but again, it's always that Warren McGrath combination of getting people out. End of the day, bowlers, they win your series because you've got to take 20 wickets to win a test match. And then, and then you think about it over a whole series. Um, and ironically, McGrath rolled his ankle and missed one of those test matches, I think, at Edgbaston, when it went right down to about three runs. And you think of having had him in the lineup, may have made a hell of a difference. So, again, it's fascinating when you look at history and what was going on and what was unfolding, and then coming back to your old question about how did Warney block that out? <laughs> fascinating just to think how strong he was and that focused to shut that out and get on with it. You look at someone like Roger Federer, who you can just tell is just so channeled, so cool, so calm, so freaking orthodox, so incredible on all levels on and off mm. the park, who is probably one of those X-factor players of all time. And then I look at Warney and I think he was this larrikin, he was this... He was loved by everybody and then everyone loved to hate him as well. Mm. But he he just wasn't your orthodox player. He was actually very unorthodox, even the way he played the game. Yet he really is a freak. Mm. How does someone like that, if, who would be the freaks in our time that you could name in all sports? Is he the number one freak in all of cricket in all time, do you think? Well, there's guys like that. I just think, You've got to realise too that having, and I've been in a fortunate position to see them and, and play with them and then talk to them. And, and the ones that for me resonate like that, who've had that lifestyle, who've had scandal, um, who've behaved how they behave, but it's, you know, they have this incredible constitution when they get up and they go again. And test cricket's unforgiving. It's five days and and having been there and having, you know, either had dysentery and groveling and suffering in that regard rather than a night out on the town on the tiles and <laughs> having a skin full and charging around with women and having fun in that regard. Um, guys like Ian Botham, you know, same same thing. But Beefy was one of the guys that you can compare with Warney. And those two, of course, thick as thieves, playing golf together, charity pro-ams, all that sort of thing. And I suppose you look at it, and, and I'm again, I'm not condoning anything here, and, and certainly not having any judgment um, in glass houses. I mean, the great Tiger Woods. I mean, look what happened with him. It all came out. Um, his behaviour and and copious parties and women, and how that how that really, in a way, was part of his formula, which is just staggering to think. 
how much energy you takes and requires. So again, I think it comes back to this incredible mental fortitude and incredible focus that they can they can live that lifestyle and do that when you think how much you need of sleep. Um, extraordinary, really is extraordinary. And again, footballers have been littered a bit down through the years of that that, that can do that of that A-lister lifestyle. Um, you know, womanizing, partying, and performing their skill on the football pitch or the cricket pitch or the golf circuit. I mean, it's just staggering that guys can do that. And, and, and yet that can be a winning formula for some males that, that can actually do that. I, again, I, I think it's very hard to either gauge until you, unless you're really in it and unless you're, say, with them as a minder side by side and with their at the coalface the whole time with it, you just can't gauge how phenomenally draining that must be. And yet you come up and then you perform and you're out there, lights, camera action, you're out in the middle and you're playing a summer code, for goodness sake. <laughs> you know, it's not like a, it's not like 45 minutes each way, you know, football. And I mean, that's still tough in its own right, sure it is. But I'm saying, you know, the cricket, you can be out there all day and then followed up with another another half a day in the field. You know, you can be out there for nearly two days in the field if you don't get it right. Warney tended to get it right and, you know, um, you get people out. But he suffered at times too out in the middle and took a toweling and um, being in the subcontinent smashed around the park and that heat, dysentery, uncomfortable, cramping, all of those things. But, um, yeah, he was he was a bit freakish and so was both of them. And those sort of guys, they come along and they're in their sport and you just think, wow, I don't know how you do it. I still don't. Must be a privilege for you to have been part of players like that with the West Indies when you started out or at the top of their game, really, as you said. He got thrashed around by the West Indies when he first came onto the scene. But there's something about high-class athletes that I want to ask you personally, and Warnie in particular too. Like, it's very easy for everyone to judge. Like you say, sit here in armchairs, so why don't you take that? I remember being at the Wacker when Kenzie had just lost his sister in a train crash mm. and he got hit around the park a little bit and these guys were yelling out, go home. And sook. I rem- yeah, you mm. sook. Terrible. And I remember turning around and absolutely giving it an earful. I'm probably not the best person to have around when I know people. Sitting in the stands listening to people criticise you mm. guys or waking up the next day and seeing what people had written, knowing you personally or knowing what you're all going through personally, I found that really challenging. You had a line, opinions are like assholes, everybody's got one. <laughs> but I am curious how, you know, it's very easy for us all to judge Warney and yet, again, watching that documentary, having met him personally, having seen how much he gave, why do you think humans have to pull people down when they're so mm. amazing? Mm. Yeah, and again, you know, little old New Zealand, and, and it's, a bit, again, I think, any part of the Commonwealth, you know, it's the same in England. I mean, again, the tabloids or here in Australia, uh, New Zealand, again, no different, that tall poppy syndrome. Um, if you're putting yourself out there, you're going you're gonna to come in for a bit of treatment. And I just think um, you're separate from the masses. And that's the only way I can really um, perhaps put that into words is that you are part of the masses. You, you are a part of something that's quite unique and you're at a level playing sport where, you know, not even half a percent can do if, if you're in it for a long time. If you're in it for a long time and do well enough, um, there's a very small percentage that can do that. And so you are putting yourself out there on the target range, as it were, and people just 
I'd love to have a crack. And if you're not performing, then, you know, that's the thing. You, you, you know, you're going to come in for public scrutiny, tabloids, journos writing about it. It just, again, it gets fueled uh, until you can then perhaps as an athlete, male, female, what you're doing to then change that. Um, you're always going to be open. You're always a target. And that's just, I think, the harsh reality of professional sport. I watched a documentary on an American tennis player who also his whole career ended over mindset and attitude and, you know, that belief that we just spoke about just recently. I've heard Adele say she questions herself. I've heard, Hmm. you know, Serena Williams question herself. I know you yourself have questioned yourself when you're in the peak of your career. Is that normal for every elite athlete to actually question it? Or was did Warney ever think it, do you think? Or was he different again? I think probably for him less, but there's no doubt. I mean, I think he does touch on it in the, um, in the documentary called Shane, is that when he wasn't good enough and told he wasn't good enough to play Aussie rules... Yeah, I mean, he, he talks about he was in the depths of depression a bit almost. Um, but he was young enough to pick himself up and get on with something else, and cricket, in a way, chose him a bit. But there were, you know, there must have been times there too when he was self-doubting, particularly at the start, um, prior to that board of the century. Um, certainly, you know, that first 12 months, he would have been thinking, you know, am I good enough? Can I really do this? Um, and he clearly could. And so I think that strength of character for him was um, quite unique again. And that's why I think so much in terms of tributes and anecdotes that will keep coming out um, in months to come about him being just this incredible self-belief, the believer. And and, and that's what I often used to say to kids in in coaching clinics and that, and written written about, is that self-belief is an incredible um, asset to have. It's an extraordinary thing to have. And if you've got it in lots of um, abundance, then, wow, um, it goes a long way in professional sport, particularly where I'm coming from. Um, Because there is just, you know, there there is at times you're going to doubt. I think we all do. I mean, any walk of life, you sort of doubt and question what you're doing or how's it going or am I doing the right thing? So I think we're talking specifically about Shane Keith Warren. Um, He was um, special in that regard too. It's a shame that someone has to die for us all to rave about him so much. Yet probably fair to say Shane Warren had a lot of compliments throughout his life and certainly, as we all know, lived a great life and Mm. mixed with the best and did the best but he still seemed to maintain that down-to-earth Melbourne boy who mm. kind of knew his roots. I just want to go back to this thing around, even though he was so different, how do you think that would have affected his family, his brother, his mum and dad, his kids? Like, what do you think that would be like to be really close to someone who whatever he did, the papers are going to pick up and they're going to spin it whatever way they want how do you think that affects family? I mean, Shane might have the attitude and aptitude mm. to deal with it, but how do you think that really affects people close? I think it did, there's no doubt. I think for his parents, um, that, that had some sort of effect. Certainly his mother, um, and, and, and she mentioned that too, and I think Simone, his ex-wife, had mentioned that too, the pair of them. It was very difficult for them um, being wife and mother 
very much so. Um, Jason, his brother, I met a couple of times and then certainly around Warney's testimonial farewell match at the MCG and I was at February 07. And subsequently, you know, Jace worked for the, um, the Shane Warne Foundation and, and in different type of roles that his brother did. And so, um, yeah, I mean, incredibly protective and, and understandably so. You know, this was your flesh and blood. And as we know, blood's thicker than water. And so they really rallied around him at times and understandably because again under that spotlight um you're going to be under that microscope more than most given that you are that good and you choose to live your life like that and make choices like that you're going to certainly become more in the spotlight than others so yeah i mean i think very challenging for them and i think that's probably one of the hardest and, and probably most saddest things at the moment given that it's still so raw is that his particular children, no doubt, and his next of kin, his parents um, and his brother. Yeah, not easy, right? Mm. An incredibly challenging time for these guys. And I know for me, you know, watching it all unfold and seeing how many people have had photos with him and seeing the tributes flowing in and everybody talking about him, it, it really is like Elvis Presley dying, Michael Jackson, Princess Diana, mm. like... He really is an icon. He really is more than a cricket identity. He is bigger than life, larger than life. There was lots of things said that his life was pretty orchestrated. You could not write the script for someone like Shane. Everything he touched went to gold. Even when it fell down, he picked himself back up and then played IPL and played in the very first year and then that team lost the first game but then won the mm. whole first IPL with Shane in it. And I, I don't know, this documentary, it just ended and was finished. He was celebrating the, the documentary filming in Kosamui when he passed away. Is, is it orchestrated from above, do you think? Like, hmm. could it have been better scripted in your humble opinion? I just think he lived a life. And I just think, you know, he mentions that in the documentary. Um, he's been blessed and he's been really fortunate to meet a lot of interesting people and rub shoulders and, and hung out and had great times and events, whether it's the golf charity stuff, the pro-am stuff with the golf that he loves so much, the poker circuit he got on, um, you know, meeting the Rolling Stones and just hanging out with that, ended up having a relationship with Elizabeth Hurley. Um, as you mentioned, Rajasthan Royals winning it in the first year, being captain and coach and pulling the strings um, phenomenal. And then to be on the, you know, Channel 9 were paying him while he was still playing. So he, he just beautifully breezed into the commentary box and was a very good punnant too. He could read the game beautifully. And so, again, that, his cricket acumen um, was extraordinary. Um, again, you know, Ian Chappell, a very close confidant of Warney's, um, you know, mentioned there, it, it seemed a shame, his off-field antics, jeopardised him possibly, say, being a one-day captain. I, don't know. I mean, he could have kept the test side too, let's be real. But in terms of that procession of guys wearing that baggy green and, and it's such a big job, I mean, they, and here in Australia, they've gone about, it's the second biggest job behind the Prime Minister, you know, coveted job as, as, as the captain of the Australian cricket team in an Ashes series playing the Poms at home or abroad. So when I look at it like that, um, Warney was this character who just simply loved life to the fullest, lived it to the fullest, 
Um, and I think there's some other contemporaries that have said they probably didn't feel he was going to live, you know, to old age as well. And you just, you just felt in, in, at times that those guys that shine so very brightly um, can also crash as well. And so when you look at that, I know that's a little bit of a cliche, but there is that about that. There's those that you know, we've seen history, like you mentioned Elvis Presley, the 27 Club, you know, for whatever they want to die and delve into that too much. But, you know, those that die young, that don't get to see our elderly years. So there is. And I think you're right. There's those greats and musicians and, and actors and sportsmen and those that don't, you know, you just, they are so gifted. Um, they're not, again, out of perhaps a movie line, they're not meant to grow old. They're just here to really entertain us massively. And then when they do go out, they go out with a bang and it's, it's hard to handle. It has been hard. Mm. We've really struggled, the two of us, over it. Mm. I didn't realise how, how much it would hit us, maybe because he was in our era. There was a number of, there's been a number of cricketers knighted. And I, would you think that he would have been in line to be knighted? <laughs> no. It's a shame, you don't think? No, and I think uh, someone mentions that in the, in the documentary, I think, too. You know, I, I, I was messed. Demi, um, Demi Mascarenas, who played a lot with him at Hampshire, um, he said of those five um, cricketers of the 20th century, all of them except Warney were knights. I think um, Sir Don Bradman, Sir Jack Hobbs, um, is it Viv Richards um, got knighted, and Sir Gary Sobers. Yeah, that's the, that's the four. Yeah, Richards, Sobers, Hobbs and Bradman were knights. They were knighted, they were given the knighters because of their contributions to cricket. Um, Warney, who played in the 20th century, but let's be real, he also played into the 21st century. But, um, yeah, I just don't think they would have sat well within the knighthood. I think the crown was even better, you know, King, the King. So King Shane rather than Sir Shane. So I think the King thing worked for me. And I think for others, I just don't think it would have rung true, really, the, the knight. Um, he was the King of Spin, you know, let's, let's be real. He was the King of Spin, so I think that boded well. He gave a lot in the game. You mentioned he caught up a lot with the fans you said he spent a lot of time, he was the guy that everyone could talk to, everyone got a photo with. Mm. But one thing he did that I'll never forget during those fires, he actually donated his baggy green mm. to, and it raised, I think, over a million dollars. Yeah. What do you think that showed about Shane Warne? I just think he was there to give. And once again, I think it showed the caring nature of Shane Warne, what he could use his celebrity and star quality um, to do and make a bit of a difference. And I think that's the underlying thing that you get from Shane Warne's documentary is that he wanted to make a bit of a difference for particularly sports fans and, and cricket lovers that he could make a difference. And um, he certainly made a difference, there's no doubt. And I think, again, by showing that side of him, um, very caring and well done and extraordinary, you know, over a million dollars for that cap, and rightly so. I mean, these guys... They don't come along very often. And we did, I just mentioned those, those knights of the, of the 20th century, Sir Don Bradman, Sir Jack Hobbs earlier, and then you had the incredible Sir Gary Sobers, Sir Garfield Sobers, and Viv Richards, who, when you look at it, everyone said, you know, Viv played in this era of T20, but it carved it up. In a way, Viv was ahead of his time, and he was extraordinary in the 70s and 80s. Amazing. So, yeah, when you look at that, you get these geniuses that come along once in a, lifetime or two and 
two generations, you might not see someone for a long time like that. So um, pretty freaky, mm. pretty freaky. We talk about people that you guys look up to. I mean, Danny, it's pretty amazing. You've been involved with those two generations. You've played, you've commentated, you've coached. Like you've lived with some of the greatest mm. in the times of some of the greatest cricketers ever. And I just want to go back to you growing up and you choosing to want to play cricket mm. by watching the great DK Lilly and Rod Marsh. Mm. And Shane talked about Rodney Marsh and here he was. His last tweet was in honour of mm. Rodney Marsh. How did that feel to you, losing two icons of the mm. game, two people that you actually looked up to and had the pleasure of working with and playing with? How mm. did that feel to you? Oh, devastating because these guys, we mentioned there, that come along every so often and when they do stand out um, and because they're so good, um, and I think also just the side of it where they're such good blokes, you know, they're there because cricket's given them so much. So then the, what I love about them, particularly Rob Marshall, Dennis Lilly uh, and Warney, uh, was that they gave back to the game because they wanted to coach in the game. And I think that's important. And, you know, geez, Rod Marsh and Dennis Lilly, Court Marsh bowled Lilly, happened, I think, on 90-odd occasions in Test cricket. And... Um, as the great Dennis Lee put in his book, you know, the photo of those two together, two peas in a pod. They were good mates, both from WA, and um, played pretty much all their career together and retired in that same summer in their last test matches together with Brig Chapel in January 84. So, and I was being, I was over here in the under 19 New Zealand side. So I could see all that unfolding. You could see why it inspired a lot of us, the next generation, to want to play and, and come out and do this and have a crack at it. Uh, and Warney was the same. He just said it was just amazing just to see those guys. And then I think giving back. And then I think whether you've been, you know, a lot of us that have either been involved in coaching youngsters and being at a cricket academies and she's had the honour of being at Dennis Lee when he ran the MRF Academy in Chennai uh, was just amazing. It was just so good to be part of. Um, and then to see Warney, you know, I remember just, you know, I'd finished playing, we're doing a bit of commentary when we still live in New Zealand, and there's Morning out there signing autographs, you know, um, doing his thing at the end of the day's play and just fascinating. And, and just you could just see it's such a big heart to do that. You mentioned heart. I find it fascinating that the amazing Dean Jones, we've lost him with a heart condition, we've lost Rodney Marsh with a heart attack, Shane Warne, our gorgeous friend Chris Kens uh, had a you know, aortic dissection, thankfully, still with us. There's, do you think they're almost the far laps of the sport <laughs> as well, like with such big hearts? Mm. There's something that they give so much, they do so much, that the heart is the place that takes it, it seems. Yeah, and I, and I think you look at those guys you've mentioned, they, they gave so much to the sport of cricket. And whether that was playing, first and foremost, then into coaching, or media side of things, they were all involved in that, and they gave a heck of a lot. And so they were about doing events for others to be entertained by or being coached by. Um, so, yeah, all, all of those guys you mentioned above, big-hearted, no doubt, and they oof, gave and gave until, as you say, their, perhaps their hearts gave out. Mm, thankfully. Kenzie's still here to talk mm. and take, pay tribute to Mr. Mr. Warren. But 
Another thing, I just want to acknowledge you for what you've given back to the sport and how much you have really made a difference with coaching and writing that book for the junior cricketers. I've had the privilege of watching you um, be one of the greatest New Zealand bowlers, in my humble opinion. Um, (laughs) I've also had the privilege of watching you be the first New Zealand cricketer to take a one-day hat-trick I've had the privilege of watching you forge a career and working in rebel sport and in schools and speaking for the Foundation of Drug and Alcohol Education. And I've also had the privilege of watching you become a commentator and a quite out there commentator in the Mm. game of IPL T20. The timing of it couldn't have been better for you. Um, Commentary from a commentating point of view, what's it like for you to commentate a game of all these amazing players and secondly, how good a commentator did Shane Warne become? Mm. Well, well documented about Shane Warne because he brought a whole new thought process to it because of what he achieved on the field and perhaps how he saw the game and read the game was a unique insight. And I think that's why they loved it. And then, and and let's also be honest and real, the great Richie Benno was moving on. Um, Richie was, you know, certainly towards the end of his commentary career, if you like. Um, so Shane was unique like that. He, he just had such a great feel for the game and could almost see it, almost crystal ball gazing and, and preempt what was coming on. And that's what you ideally want. You want ex-cricketers Yes, to give a bit of their opinion, but also a bit of their foresight and perhaps saying, you know, how this guy's getting set up nicely by the bowler and what he's trying to achieve. So um, hugely exciting from that regard. And I think it was a breath of fresh air when he came in to do that more and more for Channel 9. Um, and I know perhaps other listeners, you know, whether English or, or Kiwis, South Africans or whatever, uh, probably think he's a bit biased um, towards the Australian thing. But, you know, the Aussies playing at home was always going to be, it's always challenging to beat them at home. That's why it was so amazing. Not long ago, India winning that series 2-1 here in Australia um, last summer. So when I look at that, Warney was, um, um, again, a very gifted guy in that regard to impart that because not all the great players become really good coaches or become really good commentators. Um, they just It just doesn't resonate with them and it doesn't suit them to try and verbally deliver that. And, um, be able to do the job. So, again, it was amazing that Warnick you know, wrote the script because Packer even signed him up, I think, in the mid-'90s to say, listen, when you stop playing, um, we're going to be looking after you. And they, and they were paying him a fair chunk of money um, to get him groomed and ready. So, again, that was good foresight thinking from the late, great Kerry Packer too as a media mogul and a guy that could also have that foresight. So, yeah, I, I took my hat off to Warnie. Um at times, you got irritated by it. And the kinds of thing, you know, like that's what, you know, I, I get smashed a bit on social media. That's why there's a mute button when Morrison comes on because you're not going to be everyone's cup of tea. Um, because I'm a little bit out there and quite loud and, and a brash at times. But at the end of the day, you know your market. And I do a lot of work in the subcontinent and the Caribbean and get a bit sort of cheeky and um, a little bit extroverted and a bit eccentric. Um, that's my style and that's because I have a different zany sense of humour that doesn't resonate with a lot of perhaps more um, more straight-laced um, 
test-loving, you know, um, sports fans. And that's cool. And I think you just got to get on with it. And I, and I think in that regard, people like Warney and others who have been a bit thick-skinned, you, you've got to learn to be a bit more thick-skinned and be understanding that not everyone likes what you have to do or say as a commentator or believe in what you're saying or whatever. But at the same time, it's an entertainment industry and that's probably my side of where I'm coming from a bit more. Um, and I look at others who are a bit eccentric, like that, Kerry O'Keefe, another great wrist spinner in his own right, old Scullo Keith, and he's different with that incredible devilish laugh and he's a bit out there. And, you know, people either, you know, like that or don't or think, listen, I haven't tuned into a comedy hour. I want to, you know, hear cricket. And But you can get around that stories and, and everyone's different. So people bring different things to the table. And I think that's what's the beauty of cricket. It's such a beautiful game. And, and other guys have different thoughts or processes of, you know, verbalising and articulating that. So, you know, each to their own. But certainly with Warney, um, he, he was different. He was great. You, um, you are an incredible commentator. You are different. And I just think hearing this and listening to you and now with, you know, when Dean Jones passed and any amazing sportsman, sportswoman or any amazing entertainer, like you say, or actor, it's so hard. And, and we do tend to, when people are living, give people stick or we look at the negatives maybe or we get fired up about attitudes and think that we can sit behind a keyboard and mm. or we can send a tweet or tell people and but it does hurt and there are moments where you must find it can get you down but I just I want to take my hat off to you publicly and just say you know I, I really admire all of you for being who you are and, and not apologizing for that and I think that's one of the greatest things that sport as a metaphor for life as we've always said gives us so many skills. I know we're coming to the end and I just, I'm just wondering in a, as a tribute to this incredible human on all facets, mm. there's talk that they're going to name a stand at the MCG after Shane Warne and a state funeral. Rightly so. By the time this comes to air, I'm not sure either will be done, but what, what's your thoughts around that? Mm. And, and will he be a living icon forevermore? I think so because... Firstly, yeah, I think so as a state funeral. Um, I think is it Daniel Andrews, the, the state premier of Victoria, has also mentioned that um, the Southern Stand will be named the uh, the SK Warren Southern Stand. Um, and I, I do, I think so. He, he, like no other, and it took you back to the days of Dennis Lilly of chanting Lilly, Lilly. Um, and as the great Dennis Lilly said, you know, they made you feel at times 10 feet tall out there. They lifted you. Um, particularly when you went down and fielded there or you were about to, in your top of your mark and Warney would have been chatting with Alan Border or Mark Taylor or whoever and, you know, pointing around there and Warney, the, the, the chart would go up with for Warney. And because he was also from Melbourne, um, you can see how that fits. And uh, the stand named after him now that he's passed, um, I think it's very fitting. Um, so I, I don't think people should have a qualm about that. Um, at times he irritated you like anyone does, you know, think you've done the wrong thing, quick to judge, point the finger, all those things as humans we just do. Um, but I, I really do. I think state funeral and the stand being named after the great Shane Warren um, should be and will be done. <laughs> Funny story. 
Tell us something that you remember in the game. Is there any funny online, oh, sorry, online, on-field antic? <laughs> Was there anything in particular? I know you guys all have funny stories you tell at after-dinner speeches and things like that, but is there any one story that stands out with Shane Warne, something that he said, something that he did? Is there a particular moment for you when he gave you grief or is there any times when he's ribbed you all or anything in particular that you can think of? Uh, he loved the verbals and would get stuck into, um, and I think one of the other one, the other great anecdotes um, that I think, for cricket lovers who either listen to this or, or husbands that come and listen to this following you, um, would be knowing of the thing with Daryl Cullinan, who was a South African batter, and he, you know, um, got sledged by Warney quite often. And Warney had, you know, the mark of him. He, he had it over him. He lauded it over him all the time. He got him out a lot. So he had the wood on, Daryl Cullinan. And one of the ones with Cullinan was certainly like um, – you know, he beat him a lot in the air and was spinning it past him and he couldn't. And, he, and Warney had obviously sledged him and said, you know, you were, here, you were here last year and I remember seeing you a couple of years ago, mate, you've still not got any better, have you? And he would seize him with that and try and get under his skin with that. And then Cullinan quipped beautifully, said, yeah, I was here last year and you must have eaten all the pies. So there was that, you know, there was a two-way street. So... I remember coming out to bat at Hobart and I was on a pair and I got out to Tim May, his spinning partner in crime at the other end. And then I remember like him and him and Slater laughing and coming there looking at me. And here I was strolling out number 10 and going, ah, Danny, why aren't you batting 11? Why are you at 10? Who's after you, for God's sake? You know, that sort of thing. And then he, he would say that and he goes, ah, Magoo's here. Basically, Magoo, the, the cartoon character of Mr. Magoo, who wore those glasses. So they were round glasses, which was meaning that you were going to get two ducks together, back-to-back zeros. And I did. And I ran down the wicket and tried to slog her. I said, I'll have you. But I was having banter with it too. But I got obviously sucked into the situation. And, you know, you, you loved it and your blood was pumping and the adrenaline was flowing. And I thought, screw you. I'm coming down and teeing off. And no. Got bowled with a wrong and the other one that came back through the gate. <laughs> so he 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 had that over you. He just had such confidence and 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 great line, one liners, sledges. He loved it. So he mentions that too in the documentary. He loved the banter. Sometimes he felt he went over the top, but he could count on a couple of hands out. Maybe he was a bit too much and over the top. But he um, he loved it. And yeah, in a way, we loved him. Well, it is a self-love podcast. If anyone loved himself or believed in himself enough, it was certainly the great SK Warren. One final message. If you got to see him one more time, what would you say to Shane? What would I say to Warren? Um, I, I just think thanks for the entertainment because it wasn't even so much about, you know, locking horns or playing against him in a test match or one day. I think it was more so, you know, because of the modern era, particularly the 90s onwards, was you got to see a lot on television. Um, and I enjoyed probably as much as the Aussie fans as well, watching him spin out the English a lot. You know, we were living, playing uh, league cricket in England, that 93 series where he burst onto the scene. You saw that, you know, he went to it live at Old Trafford and then you watched it around the globe and we'd be living in New Zealand and we'd be playing our own home summer against someone else and there's warning doing his thing on TV and it was on, you know, Sky Sport New Zealand. You're watching it. So if anything... Um, I'd seen Warney again saying goodbye. I'm saying, mate, look, thanks for the memories. Had a ball. Loved it. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> he certainly was a character. And one of his favourite quotes or famous quotes is, to me, cricket is a simple game. Keep it simple and just go out and play. 
I think you could say that's a metaphor for Shane Warne's life. He kept it simple. He owned everything he did and didn't do. He played hard. He wanted to win. He really was a freak of all freaks. And I can honestly say, Mr. DK Morrison, it's been a privilege to sit alongside you and watch him burst onto the scene and also, sadly, burst out of the scene. Mm. I think we'll miss it. I'll, I'll miss the tabloids. I'll miss the, <laughs> the anecdotes, the stories. But I feel incredibly humbled and privileged as a distant observer, having met him, having watched that ball of the century ball with you and, and got to see you take him out as well. It was also a great <laughs> privilege and proud moment for me. So thank you so much for sharing that. I'm sure you know, there'll, there'll be a lot more amazing interviews and stories to come out in the many days, years and months to come. But I know on behalf of Danny and I, we would love to send our love to everyone who was touched by this and also how sad we all feel at his loss. And probably more than anything, our hearts, our love, our prayers go out to his family, his friends and those three special children. Take care. Be kind. Thanks for listening to the Self Love Podcast. Be sure to write a review and share the love with your friends and family. And head over and visit Kim and her team at 28.com. That's the word 20 and the number 8.com. Take good care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.